As I alluded to before, we've come to some of the most controversial, and I think probably in a lot of ways most ignored or avoided parts of Scripture, uh, because they say some, some things that are very difficult, very hard for the sinful human spirits to lay hold of, even, even as we are today. There, there's something about the things that Paul says here in Romans 9 that it, as we read them, they still seem to kind of grate on the, the human spirit. There's part of us that wants to cry out, that just doesn't sound right. That just doesn't sound all that fair to me. But I want to remind us uh, this morning of some things. And one of those is this, is this is, in fact, is the word of God. It's not up to you and I to decide whether we receive it or not receive it. God has given it to us. Therefore, we must, in fact, receive it and embrace it as being the teaching of uh, God Almighty. I want to remind us that uh, that that. The whole book of Romans is tied together, that there are threads that run through the whole book that bind it together, and that it's only part of Scripture. And the same thing can be true of Scripture, that when we consider anything the Bible teaches, we have to consider everything the Bible teaches about a particular thing. Remember that, 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 that fundamental rule that Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, we have to understand Romans 9 according to what the rest of Scripture has to say about the things that we find contained in Romans chapter 9 and vice versa. Uh, there are a lot of people, believe me, that would love to rip Romans 8 and 9 out of their Bible. They wish it didn't exist. They don't want to have to deal with it. They don't want to deal with it. They avoid it like the plague. I would imagine there are a lot of preachers during their whole lifetime as a preacher absolutely avoid Romans 8 and 9. Because they do not want to deal with the contents. Because they're afraid that people are going to misunderstand it. They're afraid of this and they're afraid of that. They, they themselves very often do not like what it says. And it came, you know, things really came to the table when Paul in chapters eight, in chapter 8 says that God has set apart he has predestined certain people, the elect, from the very beginning. That God is in control of absolutely everything, including absolutely every aspect of salvation. I think the fundamental issue is this, the problem that we have as people is we really do not have any comprehension of how lost and how dead we are in sin. Most people believe this, and I'm a little bit ill. In other words, they'll look at their life and they'll say, you know, the, the, there are some problems that I have. You know, I don't always do the right thing. I don't always do what I, you know, I know I need to do and, and this, that, and the other. So I, I'm willing to recognize and acknowledge that at least I'm a little ill. I'm not morally healthy completely and absolutely. 
Now just remember, the Bible declares this. It doesn't say that we're a little sick. It doesn't even say that we're, we're ill. What it says is we are dead. We are dead, absolutely dead in our trespasses. Therefore, if we had been left to ourselves, not one single person would have been saved. Not one. No, not one. Not one single person, man, woman, or child, in all of the history of mankind would have been saved. But see, God chose not to leave us all there. He never chose. He never said that he was going to save everyone. He, could he do that if he wanted to? Was the sacrifice of Christ sufficient to pay the penalty of the sins of all people? Yes. But that is not what the Bible declares. We've seen recently as we're studying through this book of Romans, and we've been in chapter 9, You know, the examples of, of, of Jacob and Esau. Very clearly, God had a divine purpose for, for Jacob from the very beginning that he did not have for Esau. And it obviously wasn't because Jacob was more godly than Esau was. Jacob, there was something good about, about, about Jacob that God saw in Jacob, but he didn't see it in Esau. Just remember, we have to let Romans speak for itself. In chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Not some, not most, not but a few, but every one. So it comes down to this. No one deserves to be saved. Not one single person deserves to have salvation. None of us do. And God could have very easily left all of us there. But he chose not to do it. He chose to save some of us in spite of ourselves. For a lot of reasons, and one of those is this. Is God has an all-encompassing character, and part of that character is he's loving. He's merciful. He's kind. He's generous. The truth is God has the right to have mercy if he wishes to. What God showed to Jacob was mercy, compassion. For his own reasons, he chose not to do that with Esau. But we cannot think for one minute that it was Jacob's doing, that somehow Jacob had a part in saving himself. God did it. Just remember, if we're left to ourselves, no one's saved. Do you understand it's absolutely necessary for God to do the saving because it's not going to happen apart from that? Period.
Today's text, finally. <laughs> Romans 9. We're going to go back to 16 and read a... Well, actually, go back to 14 and we're going to read, but focus more on 19 uh, and following. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. One of those rhetorical questions that, uh, that, that, that Paul understands that people are going to have rise up in their minds as they, they, they contemplate what he has just taught. What shall we say then? There is, in, uh, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. In other words, that's an impossibility. You cannot conclude... That from what Paul has been teaching, that God is somehow unjust in doing what he's done. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, for this very purpose... I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. That grates on the human spirit. The sin in us wants to scream, that's not fair, that's not fair, my God would never do something like that. You feel me? He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens. Hardens. Whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? I want you to know something. Paul doesn't ever really answer that question. What he says is this. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? In other words, who do you think you are to question God? Period. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if, and notice here he doesn't say God, this is for certain what God did, but what if? Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In other words, what if God actually made certain people for no other person no, or no other reason than to demonstrate his greatness and his glory by destroying them in the end. What if God did that? Even on those grounds, do you think that, that we would have any 
ground for questioning God and his intentions. He's God. He can do what he wants, with whom he wants, how he wants, anytime he wants, and he doesn't have to answer to us. Somehow we think he does. Somehow we think he has explained to us why he does everything that he does. The biggest problem for every one of us is we have a very small view of God and a much enlarged view of ourselves. We very often think our opinion is the thing that matters the very most. And we would be willing to sacrifice the opinion of God on the altar to have our way. But the fact of the matter is we are creatures. We have been created by him. Mercy is not anything that ever can be demanded. In other words, no one can demand mercy. Mercy, just by the definition of it, it means that someone does something they don't have to. Thank the Lord, He's a merciful God. And if you're a believer, then you're a recipient of, of mercy. Period. You didn't deserve it. God has freely granted you mercy when you deserved everything but that. You can't demand mercy. Mercy has to be freely given. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. And I would say this, one of the greatest mysteries for every one of us ought to be this. Why me? Why? Why? Why has God granted me mercy when he doesn't grant mercy to everybody. Don't deserve it. You and I, we do not in any way, shape, or form deserve to be saved by God. Especially the great expense it cost him to do it. And yet, nonetheless, he shows us unmitigated mercy, undeserved mercy. Should that have some aspect, or should that have something to do with the manner in which we live? We live in a world today, and let me tell you, as an unbeliever, this is what I thought. Those church people, I drive by places like this on Sunday morning. There'd be people in the park cars in the parking lot and this, that, and the other. I grew up in the church, but I turned away from it when I was a young adult. And all of that. 
But let me ask you something. What do you think the world would say that, that, that they receive more often than not from the church? Judgmentalism? Or mercy? Compassion? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. And there are all kinds of characteristics that ought to really be used to describe us, and one of those ought to be mercy. Then when those understand mercy, those who have received mercy, understand how great the mercy they've received is, and we can't even go that far. It's way beyond what we can even possibly imagine. We ought to be the most merciful people on the planet. Doling out mercy left and right. What you and I wait for very often is for people to demonstrate to us, first of all, that they deserve it. Then we're merciful to them. Let me tell you, that's not what God did in our situation. He gave us mercy when we deserved absolutely everything but. And that ought to be reflected in our own lives. In the manner in which we deal with one another, in the manner in which we deal with everybody else. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. The next verse, He hardens whom He desires. Again, God is God. God can do what he wants to. I'm not going to try to explain that away. I'm not going to try to, to water it down to the point it becomes meaningless to us. We need to take it at face value. But let me just say this. And we've said this a number of times in recent weeks, and that is this. There's enough sin in every one of us. God... Let's loosen the reins just a little bit. We're capable of doing anything. You, know, you sit here this morning and maybe think, well, I would never do that. I could never do that. I don't even think about doing that. I made a mistake one time. I got to the point, and I was very early in my walk, and I'm thinking, you know what? People were really impressed with my conversion and all this kind of stuff. I had people can compare my conversion being so radical as that of the Apostle Paul. My best friend told me, one of my best friends told me, he said, you're the last person on the face of the earth I ever thought would become a Christian. But I didn't know what grief was until I sinned big against God because I got all proud and puffed up and this, that, and the other and began to believe I'd gotten beyond certain things and then God let me see my own heart. And I went to a place I never thought I would go. I mean, I went into a deep depression that went on for months because I did something that I didn't think I was capable of doing any longer. We need to be very careful of getting to that point where we really do think that we are holier than other people. 
And let me tell you, that's how most of the world out there looks upon us. Those are those people who think they're better than I am. They think they're holy of themselves. Steve Brown used to say this. He said, the world's never going to take us serious as long as we're not serious with the rest of the world about our own sin. It is hard to imagine that we have here in the Word of God, He hardens whom He desires. If you, he uses it favorably as an example here. If you look in the passages in Exodus that have to do with this, you'll see there that this hardening is, is mentioned a number of times. And sometimes it is, is spoken of as Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And other times it says specifically that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now how does that happen? Well, it could be either actively on God's part or passively on God's part. Or both. Sometimes one and sometimes the other. Sometimes a combination of both. There's a biblical argument that can be made that it is passively. What we mean by this is, is that the Bible teaches us about sin, and one of the things we can, we can gain about it is this. It's been in the world since the Garden of Eden, and, and, and we know this, that God has been restraining sin in the world. He's been restraining sin in mankind ever since then, because if that were not true, there would have been nothing beyond the Garden of Eden. Man would have ceased to exist at that time. All because of the restraining power of God at work in people. If he wants anyone to be hardened, the only thing he has to do is let loose the reins just a little bit. In other words, to allow sin to have its way with us more. That will harden our heart without him actively doing anything. Was Pharaoh as bad as Pharaoh could have been? No. He could have done a lot more evil than he did to Israel. He could have. But even in that picture, God was restraining sin. He's done that all through history. He does that in us. But verse 19 is the real stickler in the whole ball of wax. You will say then, why does he still find fault? In other words, if he hardens someone's heart, how now could that person be responsible for themselves? Doesn't God bear culpability in this? Isn't he the one that's done wrong? You can imagine people coming to that conclusion. Because let me tell you, when I was reading this passage this morning, there was something in you going, oh gosh, I wish this wasn't here. I wish I didn't have to deal with it. Because I don't want to go there. 
But again, Paul does not <laughs> even answer that question. What he basically says is this, is who do you think you are? To question anything that God does. Period. Because God is God and you are not. He can do what he wants to do and he does not owe us an explanation. At all. He does explain a lot of things. But let me tell you something. He does not explain this. Maybe that's the best place for us to leave it. Rather than trying to explain it ourselves and digging ourselves into all kinds of holes that we don't even anticipate. Lori and I, we, you know, we have a swimming pool in our backyard. It's not enclosed, which means, and there's been a lot of trees around for years and years and years, and I've gotten to where I hate trees. Even though I'm a biologist and I've loved trees for a while, I've gotten to where I hate trees. There's hardly any trees left in our yard because I'm sick and tired of getting leaves out of the pool. Tired of it. We have a lot behind us, uh, behind our yard, and, and there were some big trees that we had taken down just a couple of years ago. And the primary reason is because we hate leaves. We hate the debris coming from the pine trees. We hate the, le the leaves coming from the oak trees. Seems like 90% of them wind up in our pool somehow. So we went to pretty great expense. They had these trees removed last year, and let me tell you, it's almost as bad now as it was then. Because we can sit out by our pool on a windy day and we can watch the leaves from the neighbor's oak tree float through the air and settle in our swimming pool. But when we did that, we had those trees cut down last year. There was a tree back, there was a big pine tree. We had these loblolly pines, which are like the biggest kind of pine tree you can possibly have. I mean, we had one that was taken down. The, the, the trunk of it was just unbelievably big. And it, these things get to be over 100 feet tall. But when they removed it, and, and another issue we have is we have grapevines everywhere. We have to battle grapevines all the time because they would take over our yard if I didn't keep them cut back. Uh, when Lori and I bought the lot, you couldn't even tell. We knew there were trees on the lot, but you couldn't tell what kind of trees they were because the whole thing was just covered with grapevines. But when they, uh, they took down these other trees, they revealed that there was a dead pine tree back and behind there that we, hadn't, we didn't even know it was there because it was so covered over with stuff. And uh, it's been this ugly, gnarly thing. It looks like something that you might see in a Harry Potter movie or something like that. You know, just this, this freaky, ugly eyesore that's been sitting there for 
the last year, and I kept telling myself, oh, I'm going to just go back there one day and just cut the stupid thing down because I can't stand to look at it anymore. It's on our lot, and you know, this, that, and the other. And our neighbor last year said something to me, how long do we have to look at that thing? <laughs> so yesterday I decided, you know, I'm tired of it. And uh, so I went out there, and so I, I, I cut it, you know, and I... And, uh, it started going down, and it stopped all of a sudden. And the reason it stopped is because those grapevines are holding it up. There's so many grapevines hanging on it, they're holding it up. They're keeping this huge tree that weighs tons from falling all the way over. You can go there and look at it right now. It's leaning about like that. And it would, you would be amazed that grapevines would have the strength to be able to hold all that weight up. We called them in the neighbors yesterday. Lori called them for me because I wanted them to know that you might hear this big crash and, and bump when this thing hits the ground, and I don't want it to scare you. And all I can tell them is it's going to come down. I don't know when it's going to come down, but it will come down. Those vines are restraining that. And what it reminds me of this morning is the sin that's still in us. It's still holding us back. It's holding us back from fully and completely embracing the God who loves us, the God who has saved us. You know, this pandemic that we find ourselves in, do you understand that this is a result of man's sin? In a sense, it's a partial judgment of God on the sinfulness of mankind. And I want you to be very cautious about concluding that so-and-so died as a result of this particular plague. Therefore, they must be worse sinners than somebody else was. That's not what we're talking about here at all. We're talking about, in a general sense, this is God's judgment upon the sinfulness of mankind, all of mankind. And what you're going to find out in this is God being merciful to some people. Yeah. There are people that are getting this virus that are actually recovering from it, right? There's a huge percentage of people in the world, whether they're believers or unbelievers, that won't even get it. Unfortunately, there will be people who come to the conclusion that I haven't gotten it, I guess, because I'm a better person. I don't deserve it. That's not what we're talking about here at all. What I'm telling you is every one of us deserves it. All of us. Left ourselves, that's exactly like what we've earned for ourselves. But God's mercy is showing through in all of this. It's not all negative. But God has every right to do with his creation whatever he wishes. He doesn't have to explain it to anybody. He just flat doesn't. Sometimes he graciously does that, but not all the time. And I think this is one of those times. 
We're just confronted with cold, hard facts, and we need to accept them, not necessarily understand them, maybe not even agree with them. As sinners, But God is God. You're not. I'm not. He is. And he does not promise to answer absolutely every one of our questions. Nor does he have to. Nor is he obligated to. He has told us what we need to know. He has told us what he wants us to know. This is him speaking to us through the Apostle Paul. This is where we are. Some questions answered. Some questions not. And that's okay. Because he's God, and we aren't.